Hello, and welcome to A Glimpse of Hell, a new podcast that discusses the cultural issues surrounding famous true crime story events and their perpetrators. You may find all social media links to this channel through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at A Glimpse of Hell. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, welcome back to A Glimpse of Hell, hosted by Rachel and Matt down here in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, we're recording this uh, remotely because we are still in quite a heavy lockdown here in Melbourne. So I wanted to welcome a my... A very different glimpse of hell. Yes, a very different glimpse of hell. Not quite what the people that we talk about in this podcast go through that. <laughs> but our own in some ways. Matt, how are you doing over there? Matt is probably, how many Ks away from me are you? Like 10, 10 Ks maybe? But, uh, uh, something like that. I, re I remember I was working out, trying to work out uh, to see if we could have uh, a, a walk in the park for exercise. And uh, yeah, I think we were just like shy of um, maybe 10 Ks or something apart. Maybe 10 Ks. So we're sort of not far away, but far enough in this, this day and age. So everyone, welcome to A Glimpse of Hell. It's not always the happiest podcast. We do another podcast about old films uh, when movies were good, so please check that out. But um, once a month we have, both Matt and I have a natural interest in true crime, so we were discussing this one day and thought we'll give doing a once a month true crime podcast to go and have a free-flowing conversation and our take on sort of the political, the historical elements of some of these horrible true crime situations that have happened. So we're doing one of the ones that's, I wouldn't use the term closest to my heart, but something that's really affected me, a true crime story that really affected me. And I think of it, you know, at least for a few seconds every day, especially in the current political climate, and that's Jim Jones, the People's Temple, and the horrible events. Um, some people say mass suicide. I don't. I say mass murder at the Jonestown camp in Guyana in 1978. So, it was kind of a bit of both. Yeah, it, it was. But the I think now history is looking at it and they they sort of have changed up some of the vocabulary with it and say forced suicide because I don't think anyone that day really, other than a few diehard believers of Jones, the people that were in his inner circle, uh, they were the true believers and everybody else was there to hopefully make a better life for themselves and uh, they didn't want to go through with what he proposed that day and they were forced to because there were guns pointed at them. So we'll just briefly go through Jim Jones, who he was, what the People's Temple was, and then we'll start a bit of a discussion about some of the things that we found particularly interesting and very sad about this case. So um, for those of you that aren't familiar with Jim Jones, you might be familiar with the term Kool-Aid drinker, which I think is a bit unfair considering what these people went through, but that's a part of the modern vernacular. We don't really use it down here in Australia, but they do use it. Basically, if you're a Kool-Aid drinker, you're someone that just accepts things to be true, even if they're not, or, you know, you're easily led um, through different points of view without really formulating your own. And I actually think that's a bit of an insult to some of the people that were down there. So uh, James Warren Jones was born in 1931. Uh, he obviously died in Guyana in November 18th on that horrible day in 1978. 
He essentially was a cult leader. He was one of the most well-known cult leaders. I mean, cult leaders are defined by bringing people into an organisation, separating them from their families, making the people rely on them for everything and becoming the centre of the universe um, and also making you very suspicious, afraid uh, and under their complete control to do everything that they say to do. So he was started off as, you know, more standard sort of preacher out in Indiana where he was born. I uh, started preaching at a young age. Uh, he was a political activist involved in left-wing politics and a supposed faith healer. He led um, a church congregation called the People's, Ten People's Temple, which started off, you know, uh, more sort of standard sort of evangelical Christian denomination and then morphed into something else that didn't wasn't really recognised about that. He was sort of disavowing the Bible and stuff towards the end of his tenure as the leader of the People's Te Temple. And essentially the People's Temple existed between 1955 and then 1978 when those terrible events happened. Um, Jones and his inner circle, so these were the people that essentially helped him run Jonestown, the settlement that he created in Guyana. So, Matt, we were talking about Adolf Eichmann in Our Last Glimpse of Hell. Yes. And we were talking about how Hitler was able to do the things that he did and he was able to do it with the help of these top people in the Nazi and the SS um, doctors who went along with these ridiculous plans that he had, but he was facilitated by them and they helped him do all the hard so-called work of actually getting the camps and everything going. And that's essentially what Jones's inner circle did. They were the Eichmanns and, you know, of, of his movement. So well, did you, before you even, Before you even get to uh, Guyana and Jonestown, even like almost 20 years early in his early sermons with faith healings, they'd even help him to do basically parlor game tricks to act like he cured a cancer, like procuring a bit of chicken liver and something to show to the stage. That's right, yeah. So they were all in on it. And I guess if you were in the audience of one of those faith healings, um, especially in his days in California, it was hard not to be brought into, oh, my gosh, I'm in this church and I'm going to get everything I need and, and all the rest of it. So we'll just briefly go through a few other steps of what the People's Temple was before we get to Guyana. So he grew up in rural Indiana and started preaching there as a teenager. Uh, apparently, according to some of the friends he had in the area, he would um, regularly do funerals for animals um, who had been killed and, and preach to his friends in little local places around the town. And even his friends back then were like, wow, this guy's really out there. But he seemed to derive some sort of pleasure from it and having a power over people because he was extremely charismatic. I mean, you know, he was a, a, an absolute mess at the end of his life. But at this start, you know, he was a nice-looking guy. He was very charismatic. So essentially he believed uh, he'd grown up on the wrong side of the tracks. His father was a nightmare, didn't work or anything. His mother was always working. And I suppose he, I don't know, Matt, what do you think? Did He sort of saw himself as this uh, outlier, this person who was from the wrong side of the tracks, and that started some of his social justice attitudes, I suppose you could say. 
It's possible. I mean, I believe uh, his father had associations with the clan, if not being a full member. And mm -hmm. that probably... Um, uh, look, uh, as far as... I, I would say... Well, first of all, Jim Jones, one of the most horrible people you can know, so I will never be defending him. But at the very beginning, he mm -hmm. could have um, potentially gone down a much better way because he obviously had the potential to spearhead a lot of work towards integration and civil rights it was that critical era but he took it to be uh, towards his own vanity project and like people get attracted to uh, a re religious um vocation for different uh, for different reasons in early childhood i mean a lot of uh, famous actors like john gildon and Laurence olivier started out with an interest in the clergy partly because of the uh, the, the strong attraction to performance, which clearly appealed to Jones as well. So it's kind of like a, a, we talk about serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer having an obsession with um, performing dissections on animals and stuff. He mm -hmm. apparently had this obsession with the uh, glory that he sought for himself um, in doing funerals for animals, and that sp span him down a different track. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, yeah, he's uh. Yeah, he had a flair for the dramatic even when he was quite young. So obviously his small uh, hometown wasn't going to facilitate his desires to become a very famous preacher. So uh, he moved the People's Temple, which would become his church, to Indianapolis, the capital of Indiana, in 1955. He had... Um, a lot of civil rights activism going on in the church and wanted an integrated congregation. Then eventually he moved, about 10 years after that, he moved the temple to California to a place called Ukiah because he read a, I read an article saying that if there was a nuclear war, that that place that's not too far from San Francisco would be one of the places that would be spared. I don't know how he came to that conclusion, but that was from a magazine article that he read. Um, so he moved he it and then eventually place to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, that probably would have been a better idea. Eventually he wanted to grow the congregation bigger. They moved to San Francisco and then they became heavily involved in left, obviously left leaning politics of the 1970s. Uh, and then when things started going wrong for him, there was a few people that left the temple most notably Grace and Tim Stowen, I believe, because Jones had uh, actually physical, he'd actually physically taken their song, son, John Victor, and was keeping them from him. And essentially all these bad stories were coming out about him and there was a group of people called the Concerned Relatives. They had either left the temple or were concerned about their um, family in the temple because they had no contact with them anymore People that had left the temple were talking about the beatings and other things that went on there. Essentially, Jones had turned it into a horrible organisation where people were forced to do things against their own will. And then he procured some land in Guyana, which is in South America, uh, and moved like a thousand of his congregation down there so he could have full control over them. Uh, and that wasn't even the final plan. Like, uh, he was hoping for a long time to move them on to the Soviet Union. Yes, that's right, because even in his, the final day at Jonestown, he was still supposedly going on about that, and some of the 
the temple members were asking him about that in that on that final day and he was like oh well they're not going to take us now so just before we go through what actually happened at Jonestown uh, he was married to Marceline Jones he married her when he was quite young uh, and Marceline he was referred to as dad or father by the congregation and Marceline was referred to as mother by the congregation although I think her intentions with the congregation were a lot better than his were but I suppose by that point she was a very abused wife and couldn't really steer clear of him he also had um, a mixed race, he had a rainbow family, I guess you could say, and I suppose that was one good thing that he did. And he, he and Marceline adopted several non-white children and he referred to his family as a rainbow family. Uh, so he had one son, Stephen, who was Marceline and Jim's biological son, and then he adopted three Korean-American children, Lou, Stephanie uh, and Suzanne, I believe her name was. And then he also had adopted Jim Jones Jr., who we would name Jim Jones Jr., who was a black child. And Marceline and Jim were the first couple in Indiana, white couple, to adopt a black child. So all that stuff sounds great. And where did it go horribly wrong sort of thing? So, Matt, were you familiar with Jim Jones at all before I, I mean, I've often spoken to you about him because of my interest in it, but what did you, did you know anything about him or? I only really knew what you told me about him. I hadn't um, researched him in, in depth. Partly I find uh, uh, cults a bit creepy to read about and mm-hmm. um, which, so that can be a bit off-putting, um, but it was fascinating to read and hear about this story. What surprised me a, a lot about Jim Jones himself was that unlike a lot of cult leaders, for example, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, he wasn't just uh, completely uh, going off in um, the margins of society. He became quite well entrenched into the uh, West Coast political system, like he was part of the Human Rights Commission, and that so many groups like the Black Panthers had uh, very high support for him. And and also it feels like he was almost like a, a, a crowd, sort of like a, a crowd agent for political rallies because one reason why politicians liked him so much because he uh, was this... Um, big congregational leader and so if they needed a, a rally needed a rally with a big crowd jones would be like okay um you can uh, book my um you can book my uh, crowd for this uh, rally uh, we will arrive at this time and yes. so on and so forth and so it seemed almost like he was um, like a like a political rally agent yeah that's that's exactly right so he had and it's often Amazing how politicians will overlook all the negative um, rumours and stuff they hear about someone if they're bankrolling their campaign or they can bring people out to to support them, you know, and make them look good and assert political pressure on different places. But, yeah, he was quite, um, you know, he did associate with the mayor of San Francisco and he was, yeah, he was on um, a couple of these different commissions, I think the ta- the planning commission as well. And when he'd go to those sorts of um, meetings, it was just a wild ride because all of the supporters would show up and be screaming and yelling. And um, well, he got into power in a similar way. He didn't get officially elected, but the president of the time wanted um, his 
sort of popularity with the masses as a boost to the main political system. Yeah, exactly. So it, um, from what I was reading, uh, I think you saw this documentary as well, Matt, and I watched it many years ago and have watched it a few times since. The it was life a hard watch. Yeah, the life and death of the People's Temple. And temple members who had either by good fortune not been in Jonestown or had managed to get out or hadn't yet arrived there, they were talking about, so he's, you know, his descent into madness sort of really ramped up in the 1970s. And prior to that, with his drug use, et cetera, starting off and then causing all the paranoia and other things, I mean, maybe he was, he was obviously not mentally all there anyway. Uh, they said, the, they said that, that the People's Temple was a good thing. You know, um, a guy, Tim Carter, who was one of the, sorry, is it Tim Carter? I think it, it is. He was one of the survivors of Jonestown. He was actually there that day. His wife and child died. But he spoke about it in the documentary and also through other readings of his that, you know, you could turn up to the People's Temple, you had a place to live, you had clothes, you had food, you had everything. And for certain people who were from the wrong side of tracks, especially minority communities, you know, all of a sudden you got there and everything was taken care of for you. But the exchange was that you essentially had to give any money you had, any government payments you had, your whole life over to the People's Temple. But for some people, that was a comfort to them. They didn't have to worry about where the next meal was coming from. And their, their children as well, quite often. Yeah, because all the families were involved. Once one person got into it, then the partner would come into it. So essentially what happened is, so we, we talked about, you know, the original days in uh, Indiana. He moved over to California, wanted to make the congregation bigger, started getting buses to bus people around in, uh, going to different places, preaching. Eventually they moved to San Francisco and there it was the temple really sort of took off, like Matt was saying, with the political movement, their ability to be able to uh, mingle with politicians. I think he even had... Um, you know, certain meetings with, you know, the governor of California. He had meetings with um, Jimmy Carter's wife, First Lady um, Rosalind Carter. So they were elected, what, in 1976. So he had, you know, he definitely had the ear of some very well-known people. But as people started leaving the temple, they started speaking out. And by 1977, that's when things started falling apart. So these defectors were called the concerned relatives and they basically got together, gave press conferences, interviews. Journalists were now writing uh, opinion pieces and articles about exactly what was happening in, in the People's Temple. So the People's Temple went from this great inclusive organisation to something with a huge cloud over it. And then Congressman Leo Ryan, who was the congressman who was... Uh, the representative for the area where the People's Temple was based and especially the people that went to the People's Temple, they were his constituents. Uh, then they started getting, he got involved in it. So uh, an article came out um, about the People's Temple, about what was happening there, written by a man called Marshall Kilduff. And pretty much when that article came out, which detailed the beatings and the other things that were going on in the temple, that's when Jones moved the congregation, literally a 1,000 people, to Guyana pretty much overnight, and then they were full-time residents at Jonestown. 
I don't know if Jamestown was ever intended to be lived in full time. I thought it was more supposed to be set up as an exchange place where people could go work for six months and then come home again. Well, I think originally it was only meant to have a few dozen people and then suddenly you have a thousand and like that's why so many were malnourished you just couldn't produce enough food i can't remember what it was but apparently most of their diet was uh, some strange uh, crop which uh, could be made quite quite easily because it was a rather harsh uh, landscape they were working in and so they weren't having much uh, protein or anything that that's right and they were only uh, they just had three small meals a day if they were lucky and I think it was mostly like rice and things like that that they were eating and you're right the only person or persons that seemed to have a decent meal was Jones and his inner circle because he had the fridge and all the rest of it so they've moved down there uh, essentially the politicians in California with the pressure from the concerned relatives started getting involved in it Jones was clapping back from Guyana saying that they were just trying to damage his reputation, etc. Uh, and some politicians were still on his side saying that he hadn't done anything wrong. So eventually Leo Ryan, Congressman Leo Ryan, went down there and I actually heard an interesting story, Matt, that uh, Dan Quayle, Vice President Dan Quayle, who was a member of Congress at the time, because yeah. he was from Indiana where the temple had started, he was actually asked by Leo Ryan to go with him to Guyana. And for some reason, Dan Quayle didn't end up going. But, wow, I guess his life could have been a lot different if he'd gone down there because he would have been yeah. in right involved in everything that day. Talk but about maybe, fork in the road. Yeah, talk about fork in the road. And I, for the life of me, don't understand why the US government allowed Congressman Ryan to go down there with with no protection other than himself and some of the concerned relatives who were desperate to see some of the people in the camp. So uh, November 1978, Congressman Ryan wanted to go and see the camp for himself in Guyana, um, flew into Georgetown, the capital, and then made his way out into the dense jungle with himself and some concerned relatives, uh, an NBC camera crew, and then some reporters from various papers, people like Tim Reiterman, who survived uh, the Jonestown Day as well, and he went on to write one of the first books about Jonestown. So initially when they arrived in Georgetown, Jones was like, no, you're not coming in, you're not seeing it. Eventually uh, Ryan managed to sort of wrangle his way with some of the concerned relatives into Jonestown, uh, and then everything was la da They presented a nice... Um, what would you say, Matt, like a nice dinner and show for the congressman? Well, yeah, about the only uh, positive thing um, the, in the last few hours of the lives of the camp members was that they got to have a fried chicken dinner. They did. They actually, you know, everything was put on with the best possible front to show Congressman Ryan and his assistant and the camera crew and the reporters that were with them that everything was going okay but there was this sort of um uneasiness in the settlement like things were about to pop off at any particular moment well, they don't be rehearsed to how to talk to the crew to, to the camera crew uh, like right. uh, like and not just like a full denial but like i've got to admit it was actually rather clever how 
how they planned it. Like, uh, so, like, there was one woman who was um, uh, recommended to be like, okay, so we're not uh, pro or or anti-American or anything, so just sort of go in the middle. So, like, it was being they were being politicians. Very clever speech to not be too harsh in how they're wording it. Yes, so what happened and how all the hell started breaking loose is one of the temple members, Vernon Gosney, who had joined the temple because he had lost his wife through, I don't know if it was complications with childbirth or something. He was also struggling with his own sexuality and everything as well. And his wife, they were actually in a mixed marriage too, mixed race marriage. So he had all these social things going on in his mind. They'd left the temple and then when his wife passed away, he had this baby son that he couldn't deal with on his own and he decided to go back to the temple and, as he said, the minute he arrived in Jonestown, he wanted to leave. He was not permitted to do so. His passport, everything, any means that he and his son had to leave was taken away. So Vernon Gosney and his friend Monica Bagby, and you couldn't really trust anyone in Jonestown, but these two trusted each other. They slipped NBC reporter Don Harris a note saying that they both wanted to leave. The note, when he slipped it to him, he tried to put it in the fold of his arm. The note fell on the floor and then other people's temple members, had, you know, said, oh, my God, he just passed a note. And then from there, things started going downhill. So um, pretty much when they got up the next day, more and more people wanted to leave. And that to Jones was that was not going to happen because he knew that as more and more people started to leave, this little empire or whatever he had down there, total control over everyone, that would collapse and he potentially could be charged and he could be in jail because, Matt, you probably also read like all, you know, his racketeering and all this sort of stuff, you know, taking money off people and he had wads of cash down there. He was taking all of the temple members' money everything they were getting paid, everything they earned. He had, you know, suitcases of cash down there, gold bullion, all sorts of things. So he was a criminal as well, not only well, a bad guy, but a full-on criminal too. Yeah, uh, it's hard to say what's going through anyone's mind, but I honestly think probably from very early life, any religious sentiment he had probably disappeared into his... Uh, communist pro-communist anger which may have um started from what someone interprets as uh, virtuous uh, goals in like the early 50s like probably uh, anger during the mccarthyism era but it's mm -hmm. very clear that from that period on he became more and more concerned about jim jones and uh, uh hiding the abuses he committed yeah that's right so essentially after the note was passed, they got up the next morning. This is the morning of the final day. More and more people wanted to leave, and they said that they were being held there by their own will. Uh, only a dozen or so members. There, there had also been a group of people that sort of sensed something bad was going to happen that day, so they took off into the jungle themselves, about a dozen people or so with some children. They just took off themselves trying to walk to Port Kaituma, which was the nearest sort of little town with an airstrip etc the airstrip and there was the uh, and there was the old lady that hid under her bed yeah hi hi i think hi flash i think her name was yeah she was just she either fell asleep or she just looked outside and thought no i thought she was one of the smartest people there really 
she was like, not, not interested. And a few other people were, there was another man who just looked around and said, yeah, uh, no, I'm leaving. And he kind of got out while the going was good because once things started into motion, uh, it was impossible for anyone else to leave unless Jones gave you permission to. So just quickly going through the horrible cascading events of that day, essentially as uh, the people, the defectors they were called, who wanted to leave Jonestown with Ryan, he messaged through and said he'd need another aeroplane to take the people with him. One of Jones's members attacked him uh, and wasn't, you know, the congressman wasn't injured as such. He had a bit of blood on him and stuff. And he's like, right, we're out of here. So they took off towards the trucks. And then pretty much after that, Jones was like, okay, game on. It's time to do our final white night, I guess you could call it. And white night was his sort of uh, the drills, that he, the suicide drills that he used to run all night, most nights, um, coming up to the congressman's visit and even before that as well. So by the time they got to the airport strip, they were getting on the plane. Some people from the temple, from Jonestown had arrived, shot the congressman shot the members of the camera crew, also his assistant, Jackie Spear, as well, uh, Vern Gosney, Monica Bagby, obviously the congressman, and several other people died. And then the other people just survived by sheer luck, either pretending they were dead or their wounds had not killed them. Meanwhile, back at Jonestown, Jones got the word that this had happened and this played right into his hands because he's like, well, there's no other option for us now except our revolutionary suicide. And so in the late afternoon of that day on November 18th in Guyana, Jonestown, but one of the largest mass suicides, if not the largest mass suicide in history began with Jones ordering that vats of cyanide mixed up with Kool-Aid or Flavor-Aid were brought out, the children would be killed first, uh, and then the adults. Uh, so the children were injected, so they were murdered. There's no choice. They never had a choice in anything. And then uh, the people were, you know, they had guns pointed at them, and if they didn't drink it, then they would be forcibly syringed or they would be shot. And, like, uh, you know, Matt, I don't know, did you listen to, you know, how Jones recorded all of his sermons? Did you listen to that final day? It's a bit of, hard, a bit of a hard listen. The death tape, yeah. yeah. It's, it's extremely creepy and um, unlike uh, uh, just a straight recording, it, because they kept recycling these audio tapes, there was um, uh, like this rather gloomy, spooky, echoey uh, background sound to the whole event so it's kind of like you had sort of like a chorus of satan brothers egging them on the whole time mm, that's an interesting observation yeah it's it's i've listened to it a couple of times just because there was one lady christine miller who was trying to argue against jones and saying well everything we've done here why do we deserve to die you know, just because a few people left, it doesn't mean that we all need to die and can't we? I, I, thought I would talk to like die. 20 people versus a thousand uh, that yeah. have stayed. Exactly. And so, you know, she was eventually shouted down and, and, and Jones made up some lie about, oh, well, we contacted the Russians and they're not interested in having us. Uh, meanwhile, back at the capital of Georgetown, uh, Jim three of Jim Jones's children were playing there in the basketball team. So his biological son, Stephen, Jim Jr. and Tim, I believe it was, who was also adopted as well. 
uh, James had given a command to them. They were at the house in a place called Lamahar Gardens and they were told to kill themselves as well. And the three boys were like, no. But one of the ladies, Sharon Amos, that did run the temple house in Georgetown. One of the true believers. She she was one of the true believers. Um, And actually, uh, Sharon's daughter, her father, Sherwin Harris, was actually one of the concerned relatives. And he was so excited because he'd been able to see his daughter for the first time in ages. And he was thrilled because he got to see her and he was going to be meeting up with her the next day. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Anyway, she killed herself. There was another man with her. And the three, her three children, her daughter and her, I think her adopted two children, uh, in the bathroom of the house. By this point, Jim's sons had gone to the Pegasus Hotel where the concerned relatives were staying and also had gone to the US Embassy uh, because they said, look, our dad's got this death wish, all the rest of it, you need to get out there. And that's when people started finding out about what I think they arrived the next day and then they saw the carnage and it was, yeah, over 900 people died out there taking that mix of cyanide and the Kool-Aid, which they were they were forced to do. And some people did escape. Uh, Stanley Clayton, uh, he was one of the members who did actually just after his family was killed, he just said, no, I'm leaving, I'm out. And he says to this day, he said, that man killed us. So uh, he, there's no doubt in my mind that that's what he did. And um, I do get a bit offended when I hear people toss around the term, oh, Kool-Aid drinker, because, uh, yeah, there were a few true believers that would have done exactly what he said, but most people went out there for a better life and that's not how they wanted to to end up. And then the whole grisly task of trying to get all of the bodies back to the US, many of them were unclaimed. The US military had to do it. Um, Some of them are um, are buried in sort of a mass grave area in San Francisco Uh, Other relatives were able to claim the bodies and, of course, Jim was brought back to the US as well, but he didn't, Matt, die of cyanide. He died of gunshot wounds. I'm not sure who carried that out on him. But uh, Marceline, his wife, died and his other children and their family who were... So he lost grandchildren out there that day. He lost uh, uh, his other children, his son Lou, his daughter, the other son, grandchildren. So, yeah, he, he was committed to this. He didn't care if his family had to get taken down as well. So what a stigma. I I saw some footage of Stephen Jones the next day and he just had this blank, shocked look on his face because you sort of forget all the people he grew up with. Everyone was dead, you know, Uh, his siblings, his mother. I mean, I'm sure he's glad his dad was dead, but, oh, gosh, it's just I'll never forget the look on his face. Well, could you imagine, like, uh, being a kid there that's, like, old enough to know what's going on, uh, uh, but, like, you've grown up in this in- uh, community and suddenly um, they're uh, facing you with a syringe or a cup of poison. Uh, yep. Um, and one tragic, extra tragedy on top of it, top of it is that I think it, Potentially could have gone a little bit better if um, when the attack on the congressman occurred, um, because I think one thing that made Jones desperate to sort of um, end things before uh, people really sort of found out his true colours was that uh, he knew that by that attack on the congressman there was going to be a 
investigation by the Guyanese police because, like, they weren't a separate. Although they acted like a, they weren't a separate country, they were in a remote part of the jungle, but they were uh, mm. s- still subject to uh, to the laws of Guyana, and there'd be an investigation. And so, I that probably made him realize that okay, we've got twenty four hours. Even if it wasn't like he was going to say about. Uh, paratroopers coming in to shoot them down. It it was uh, like he realized it was his one way of stop uh, of not being revealed as a charlatan and being brought in chains. Yeah, that's right. And because the population at Jonestown was so demoralized, not only were they tired and malnourished, and you know he was basically running it like a mini concentration camp. Really, not to throw that term around loosely, but he was. Uh, they were, he was also the only source of information that they had. He told them the news that was happening from the United States, uh, that, you know, the black community was being rounded up and killed and all this sort of stuff, which was, okay, things may not have been perfect, but that certainly wasn't happening. Um, Perhaps we should make clear for listeners just how physically remote their location was. Yeah. Uh, because to put it in perspective, you have this uh, thousand-person community. To get to leave it would involve a forty-five-minute car or tractor ride through dense jungle, which was a nightmare to maintain the roads. It's like you go a few feet into the jungle and you're already lost. Yes, and one could imagine only all the lethal snakes and everything, and that just gets you to a tiny airstrip. That doesn't even get you to the next uh, reasonably sized town. And the only contact with the outside world was like the CB radio they had uh, in the radio room, which then connected to that um, processing house they had in uh, Georgetown. Yeah, that's right. So the only news they ever got was his monotone voice over the loudspeaker at the camp reading out his version of political and, and newsworthy events. So they were pretty much brainwashed, not because they chose to be, but because there was no other options for them. So this demoralised, malnourished group of people, I'm sure there were a lot of people who were like, I'm just going to give up because I can't keep going anymore. So it's just what happened out there was an utter tragedy because, as Nat was saying at the start, it should have been a really good thing. It should have been a great thing. 